Prestige listeners, it's Derek, and I am very pleased to be joined by Stuart Reed. Stuart is an executive editor at Foreign Affairs, and he is the author of the excellent The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. Uh, it is a great book. You should pick it up. We'll have a link in the show description. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's just get right into it. What drew you to to this story? And and maybe you could talk a little bit about who Patrice Lumumba was. Let's not get into the Congo crisis just yet, but um, what drew you to him as a figure and what drew you to this story in particular? So I first went to Congo in 2014. I was there to write about something current events focused. Um, but the I was you know taken with the country immediately and started reading up on its history. And the more I read, the more I realized there was this crisis in 1960, which was front page news of the New York Times, um, and then sort of faded into obscurity afterwards. And at the center of this crisis um, were a number of figures, uh, most important Patrice Lumumba, who was the Congo's first leader after independence from Belgium, its democratically elected prime minister. Um, and he's an endlessly fascinating character. I mean, rose from very humble circumstances in the cramped context of Belgian colonialism to educate himself, co-found a political party, and become prime minister of this country at independence in this great moment of, of hope which eventually, as we I'm sure we'll get into, sort of descended into tragedy. So he, he was really the, um, the main draw all along. He's the main character of the book, and he's um, sort of endlessly fascinating. He became later sort of adopted by the left and, and much mythologized, and my goal was to sort of scrape away all that and focus on the man, his actions, his words at the time, um, and you know, depict him in all his complexity and reality. Was it always going to be about the CIA and, and the assassination, or did that only kind of emerge after you started with Lumumba and started picking at that thread? That was that was always there early on. I mean, much has been written, um, very good and important works on the Belgian role in this, but less so in the CIA role, in part because um, many of the documents didn't come out. I mean, a, a big trove was released in 2013, but some of the documents... I drew on were declassified as early as the beginning of last year, 2023, when I was finishing up proofs of the book, um, yet more and more documents were, were becoming released. Um, and what the, what I found, and you know, some of this was known, uh, some of this, uh, less so was that in every single, um, step of events that led to the demise of Lumumba, you can find the CIA's fingerprints. So it became, it's impossible to tell the story of Lumumba without telling the story of U.S. meddling and particularly that of the CIA. So why don't we talk about the context and, and we can get into to the documents and the evidence, I think, a bit later when we, we really get into the CIA's role. But, but let's start with what is the situation in Congo 
1960 upon independence and you know things break down very quickly but uh, maybe we could start with the colonial context and the immediate aftermath what does this country look like so the main thing to know about the colonial context is that the belgians only started the process of preparing Congo for independence extremely belatedly. And to give you just a, a data point about that, in 1955, a Belgian academic wrote a paper um, called The 30-Year Plan for the Independence of the Belgian Congo. The idea was that only by 1985 would the colony finally be ready for independence. Because of that, paper. He almost lost his job at his university because it was seen as far too quick a timeline and far too radical a proposition. But things changed very quickly in the late 50s. In 1959, there was a a big anti-colonial riot in Leopoldville, the capital of the Belgian Congo. And that um, demonstrated the sort of awakening of the, the Congolese population, but also showed to the Belgians the unsustainability of colonial rule. They were looking at what was happening in Algeria with the, the war against the French there and, and did not want an anti-colonial war of their own. And so very quickly, um, you know, some combination of Congolese pressure and uh, Belgium, Belgian self-interest produced this very quick rush toward independence. And so in, in at the beginning of 1960, there was a roundtable conference with the sort of leading Congolese political elites and the Belgian government, where the details of independence were worked out. Um, Another thing to know about Belgian colonialism was that they deliberately prevented the emergence of a Congolese elite until very late. And so there was a Congolese elite, but they were um, less worldly, less educated than their counterparts in um, French and British colonies. Uh, You know, in 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 certain French colony, I mean, in in French. uh, West Africa, you had a black colonial um, governor general in the 1940s, something that you had no equivalent of in Congo. So all that is to say, the Belgian preparations were belated and hasty. And so independence is scheduled for June 30th, 1960. Lumumba has won parliamentary elections that spring, thus becoming prime minister of the country. And within literally days of independence, order just utterly breaks down. The army has a mutiny. The all-black rank and file, predictably, mutinies against the all-white officer corps, a holdover from colonialism. Um, the, The soldiers start terrorizing the Belgian population in the Congo, which then flees en masse. The Belgian military sends in uh, paratroopers descending across the country, essentially invading what is now a former colony. And then the mineral-rich province of Katanga in the country's southeast, which was providing all the revenue, announces its secession. So that's within two weeks of independence. The country that Lumumba has um, taken the reins of utterly is falling apart. And that's sort of the, the context in which um, events begin. So Lumumba, maybe you could talk a, a bit about how he emerged in in pre-independence politics to to become, you know, to to achieve the stature where he becomes prime minister. Uh, and what can we say about his uh, ideology? This becomes a factor, obviously, later when the U.S. decides that he's a communist. 
which seems unfounded. Uh, but what can we say about his politics uh, up to this point? So Lumumba was born in a, a small village. Um, he then, in his late teens, early 20s, migrated to the city of Stanleyville, now known as Kisangani, which was a provincial capital and a major trading hub. And it was there that he began his rise. He joined the colonial administration working as a postal clerk and rising through the ranks. Um, he then was caught embezzling money from the post office, which he admitted to and for which he was imprisoned. During his time in prison in 1956, he sort of starts to become more politically aware than he had previously been. And he writes this book manuscript, never published during his lifetime. Um, and what's remarkable about that in retrospect is how moderate his demands were. Part of this was strategic. He knew he couldn't offend colonial authorities and there was censorship and then there was a limit on what you could and uh, could not say. But part of this, I think, also reflected a political evolution in process. And so Lumumba was not asking for immediate independence, but sort of uh, mild reforms on the part of the colonial administration that would make life better for Congolese elites like himself. Um, he's then released from prison, remakes himself in the capital of the Congo, Leopoldville, um, becomes a beer promoter of all things, traveling from bar to bar, selling, uh, you know, trying to convince drinkers to drink his breweries beer and not uh, the rival one. And in that environment, um, he really you know, comes of age politically, develops the strong anti-colonial views that would propel him to power, links up with other activists in the Congo, travels to conferences, pan-African conferences, and meets independence activists in other African colonies. And then, you know, as during that process, co-founds a, a political party. It, it, you asked about ideology, and it's it's a sort of trickier question to answer than you might think. Um, in part because there's sort of, in a way, it was only one ideology pre-independence, which was anti-colonialism. And so you could, and then that made sense. That was the important struggle to be won. Um, the other big dividing line, though, was about um, how centralized the new country should be should it be should power be devolved to the provincial level after all it's a big country with many different ethnic groups it's a you know artifact of european colonialism or should it be a strong unified country with a strong central government and, and on that question lumumba very much was of the opinion that it should be strong centralized unified um and so he was uh that was his um chief political ideology as he was campaigning in the 1960 elections. After taking power, what can we say of his ideology? I mean, he barely had time to implement anything. Um, he had to switch to crisis survival mode within days of independence. Um, we can say that he was pan-African in his outlook, meaning that he believed that fellow African populations were engaged in the same collective struggle first to rid themselves of their European overseers, then to develop on their own. Um, economically, he opposed nationalization. Um, what's interesting, as you alluded to, is that he was later deemed a communist or pro-Soviet or um, you know, playing footsie with the communists. He was deemed that by the West, 
certainly by Belgium, also by the United States. But if you actually look at what he said and did, he was far more inherently pro-American in his outlook. Um, he talked about educating Congolese students in the United States. He even at one point asked for U.S. troops to be sent to the Congo to restore order, which hardly um, can be classified as pro-Soviet. So his ideology, again, after his death, sort of a lot of um, positions were attributed to him that he never demonstrated during his life. Um, but the the main ideology, I think, was anti-colonialism, a desire to be free of foreign influence, and then also this strong nationalism, this idea that Congo should be united and, and strong, and that was the only way it was going to survive on the world stage. So Lumumba becomes prime minister, the country becomes independent, and things, as you say, break down within a, a couple of weeks. What is his immediate response, and at what point does he start turning to international actors, as you alluded to, the United States being one of them, to come in and, and help patch things together? How does this sort of initial response proceed? His initial response to the mutiny is to, quote-unquote, Africanize the officer corps, meaning fire all the Belgian officers. And he makes a fateful decision in that he puts his friend and protege, Joseph Mobutu, in charge of this process as an effective head of the military. Mobutu had been Lumumba's sort of errand boy and intern and then junior minister in his government. And after the mutiny, he puts him in charge of the military. So that's one uh, important decision that would prove fateful. And then the other thing he does is he calls on the United Nations for help. He sends a telegram to Dog Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the UN, asking for some sort of UN intervention. And the UN responds with great alacrity, and within uh, a week, there are 5,000 UN peacekeepers in the Congo, drawn mostly from fellow African countries. And at, at first, Lumumba puts his hopes in the United Nations, that perhaps they can resolve this crisis. But he then decides that he's he's not satisfied with the UN. The UN, above all, most important, won't go into that breakaway province of Katanga and forcibly reintegrate it. Hammarskjöld didn't want a, a war, didn't want to have to have an invasion of this rogue province, and he thought it would be bloody and unpopular among members of the UN Security Council. Lumumba thought he could you know, he had invited in the, the UN, he could therefore tell it what to do. Um, so Lumumba's utterly frustrated with the UN. He then knocks on the American story, travels to Washington, D.C., meets with the State Department. President Eisenhower's out of town at the time and is hoping for direct aid from the Americans. They rebuff him and essentially tell him to go back to the UN and everything has to go to the UN. And so it is then and only then that he turns to the Soviet Union for help, his third choice after the UN and the United States. And that is the the moment where um, Lumumba's fate is really sealed. He's committed this unforgivable Cold War sin of um, knocking on Moscow's door. I flagged the quote that you have from Richard Helms because it's just perfect at the beginning of your book where he says, I'm relatively certain that Lumumba represented something that the United States government didn't like, but I can't remember anymore what it was. Was he right? Was he left? What was wrong? I don't, why didn't we like him? We don't know. I mean, it's it's sort of like eliding the fact that that he really 
appealed to the United States first and, and seems to have gone to the, to the Soviet Union. Um, not maybe not quite as a last resort, but as a, a you know fallback position. This was not the direction that he wanted to go. But let's talk about this Western response. And and you you know you mentioned. I mean, obviously Belgium is the colonial power uh, or ex-colonial power at this point. Still has interests here. How much was was the Belgian government involved in kind of steering Western? governments away from helping Lumumba. I know that they were involved in uh, supporting the Katanga insurgency, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Just sort of what's the Belgian role uh, at this point? Yeah, the, the Belgians were whispering in the Americans' ears at every step along the way. But the, the broader context here is the United States at this point in the Cold War sort of faced this difficult choice. Um, the What was then called the Third World was consisting of countries that were in the process of becoming independent, and they were now sort of up for grabs in the global Cold War game. And there was a dilemma that the United States faced of do we back our European allies, um, such as Belgium, France, the United Kingdom, with whom we were, you know, have are very close, especially the World War II experience. Um, they're members of NATO now. Do we stick with those European allies who have retrograde, unsustainable policies in, in uh, their colonies? Or do we align ourselves with the populations of these newly independent and in the process of becoming independent countries, um, lest they turn into the arms of the Soviets? So there was a real tension there. The United States um didn't want to purely follow Belgium's lead um and you know the the cables and memos at the time are are full of american frustrations with the belgians retrograde attitude toward the congo um on the other hand when push came to shove ultimately the united states sided far more with Belgium. There was, you know, some daylight between U.S. policy and Belgian policy, to be clear, but essentially picked that side of events. And part of this was the information the Americans were getting. I mean, particularly on the question of what to make of Lumumba, for months before independence, uh, the Belgians had been telling the U.S. ambassador in Belgium, um, the consul general in the Belgian Congo, sort of anti-Lumumba stories. The Belgians had soured on him early on before independence and were feeding this propaganda into American ears. And I think that definitely played a role in informing American opinions about Lumumba. And so they were sort of predisposed to view him skeptically. Um, you know, they, they initially took a wait-and-see approach, um, but then very quickly the Americans turned against him um, once he uh, made overtures to the Soviets. So Belgium's role here was was very important. Um, it played a role also in the events that led to Lumumba's death. But I also want to point out that at the end of the day, the Americans were the superpower on the ground. Um, the CIA was you know, extremely well-financed. Uh, you know, the CIA station chief, Larry Devlin, was intimately involved in um, the day-to-day politics of the Congo. So it would be a mistake to sort of dismiss American influence and focus only on Belgian intervention. Let's talk a little bit about the Eisenhower administration and what this, uh, what its approach to Lumumba and the Congo says about uh, its 
where its foreign policy had come to by 1960, by the end of Eisenhower's term. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this as you were describing uh, the thought process, you juxtaposing it with the way the Eisenhower administration approached the Suez crisis, which was much different. I mean, it was in support of uh, basically, if not quite in support of Nasser, then at least telling the the French and the, the British to knock it off, uh, which was sort of a shocking moment in in Cold War history. But here it's it's we're going all in with the Europeans. Is there is there a through line that connects these things or or is it just sort of a question of the usual haphazard response to anything? I think part of the difference between the 56 Suez crisis and 1960 was that in the intervening years, Cold War paranoia had increased. I think also Eisenhower himself had really, by all accounts, checked out of the job. Um, by the summer of 1960, he had you know about six months left of his uh, final term in office. Um, he was playing, spending most of his time playing golf. Uh, he told um, someone, I think the the White House doctor, that he wished someone would just take him out and, and shoot him. He was really um, a diminished man by the end of his presidency. And so there's a, a, a crucial moment on August 18th, 1960, where Lumumba's just threatened to kick out the UN. He's made various overtures to the Soviets. And this is all being discussed at a National Security Council meeting at the White House with Eisenhower present. And at that point in the meeting, at some point in the meeting, Eisenhower makes a comment that um, we don't know the exact words, but it's uh, the, the impression it left observers with was that Lumumba had to be assassinated. And we know this for a few reasons. The note taker at the meeting would later testify to the church committee about this, the church committee being the um, Senate body uh, tasked with investigating CIA excesses. Um, I, in the Eisenhower Library in Kansas, I found handwritten notes from that meeting where someone wrote Lumumba and then a big black X next to his name. Um, and most important, we know that Eisenhower said this based on what happened next, which is that the CIA sets in motion this bizarre assassination plot. Um, and then when involving poisons that are supposed to be put in Lumumba's food or toothpaste, and when the poisons are delivered by a CIA scientist to the Congo, um, the station chief asks, who gave this order? And he's told Eisenhower. So um, the, the broader context is Cold War paranoia, a, um, a tendency to interpret any comment or action that Lumumba made or took in the least favorable light. And then also a president who was sort of in decline, uh, not particularly, um, you know, seized with with the day to day of his job, and also, frankly, um, not particularly inclined to look favorably upon a black African nationalist. I mean, Eisenhower was a, a foot dragger on civil rights. In his memoir, he later suggested that he didn't think African countries should be allowed to join the UN as members. So this, these were views that were, even for their time, you know, outdated. So let's get into the assassination plan, which is, as you say, comes, comes before Mobutu makes his uh, move against Lumumba. The CIA decides to just off Lumumba. Uh, of its own accord, or Eisenhower, you know, gives the order. Perhaps, what do we know about this? What if, what if some of the documents? I guess, you know, maybe we could get into sort of the process of 
writing the book and some of the things that you looked at and what's been declassified uh, in recent years, including, you know, the stuff that was just declassified helpfully while you were in proofs on your book. So a lot of what we know about the assassination plot comes from the church committee, the report it released way back in 1975. But then there was um, a big document drop in 2013 when the State Department's Foreign Relations of the United States volume released you know, lots of documents that include the sort of day-to-day operational cables of the CIA. And that really allowed me to sort of tell the story with texture. Um, separately, the JFK assassination records include a lot of information about a lot of church committee documents and a lot of stuff about um, the operation against Lumumba. So those were sort of the the backbone of this, plus State Department archives, um, Eisenhower Library stuff, and then and documents from the UN. Um, the documents from the UN don't deal with the assassination operation, which was unknown to the UN. And what happens is, uh, I mean, the CIA in Congo, it's this sort of split-screen story of bumbling, uh, you know, failure, delay, bureaucratic snafus on the one hand, and on the other hand, incredible competence and consequential decisions that shape the future of the Congo. So the the poison plot is more on the bumbling side of things. So Eisenhower re- makes this remark on August 18th. Then a week later, um, at a White House meeting where Eisenhower is not present, uh, his national security advisor says to Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, um, basically, hey, remember what our boss said about uh, Lumumba? Like, I want to make sure you're making progress on that. So Alan Dulles had to sort of be prodded to get going on this assassination operation. He initially appears to have treated it as sort of an offhand comment that didn't require him to to do anything. When he gets this reminder from Gordon Gray, the national security advisor, he then springs into action, tells one of his deputies, a man named Richard Bissell, sort of this um, you know, remarkable cold warrior in the CIA who would later um, lose his job over the Bay of Pigs fiasco. He tells uh, Bissell to get something in action. And Bissell then goes to a man named Sidney Gottlieb, who's the CIA's top chemist. And the chemist, Sidney Gottlieb, um, picks a, a poison that will kill Lumumba. Um, there's good reason to believe it was botulinum toxin. Um, the idea being that this would kill Lumumba and it, it would there'd be a delay between um, ingestion and death and it would look like Lumumba died of natural causes and no one would know that this in fact had been a, a CIA hit. Um, the poison only makes it to the Congo on uh, in mid-September, so a month after Eisenhower's uh, comment ordering this. And what uh, a lot has happened in that intervening month. Um, Lumumba has been fired by the president of Congo, Lumumba's prime minister. The president says that he's fired him. Lumumba says, no, you can't fire me. I fire you. So the two top leaders of the Congo have fired each other. And then into that stalemate steps Joseph Mobutu, the head of the military, Lumumba's former friend and protege. Um, he takes power in a coup, uh, financed and, and supported and arranged by the CIA station chief. And at that point, Lumumba is under house arrest. So 
the poisons have no way of reaching him. Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, simply cannot penetrate Lumumba's entourage and get the poisons into his food or toothpaste as instructed. Um, so the poisoning plot sort of fizzles out and never comes to fruition. I want to talk about Devlin for a second because this is a, an interesting guy who, who uh, seems committed to the idea that Lumumba has to go, but he also seems very skeptical about the poisoning plot, that this is going to backfire on the U.S. Can you talk a bit about the role that Devlin played in, in sort of shaping what happened? Yeah, so on the poisoning plot, there's sort of a debate about whether Devlin uh, tried to slow roll this. He would later claim that he thought it was a terrible idea and totally disagreed with it. Um, the cable traffic at the time, my interpretation of it is it, it's mixed, in that on the one hand, um, his bosses in Washington are are saying, uh, excuse me, what's up with this assassination plot? Why has nothing happened? You're being too slow. Do you need more help? Uh, you know, nudging him. And he's replying, um, sort of like, a, a, you know, an employee is trying to stall for time and pretend that he's really busy saying, yo, I'm trying. I tried this, I tried that. It's not working. Um, but he also does suggest other alternatives. Uh, I think seven different alternative ways of assassinating Lumumba at one point asking for a hunting rifle to be sent by diplomatic pouch. Um, but that is sort of all a moot point because the most important thing he did was encourage Mobutu to take power in a coup, give him a briefcase of cash that Mobutu had asked for in order to pay off his officers, and then support Mobutu throughout his time in power. And that became the sort of key decision in Congo in 1960 that led to many you know, decades of, of misrule afterwards. And then the other really important thing Devlin did is he played, he, he didn't manage to poison Lumumba or assassinate him directly any other way, but he played a, a key role in the week of events that led to Lumumba's death, which we can, we can talk about if you want. Yeah, let's talk about Mobutu. Um, obviously, uh, the, another major player in all of this, uh, the Hamlet of Africa, because of all the drama around his friendship with Lumumba and then his kind of agonizing back and forth, supposedly about, should I, should I do this? Should I not do this? Uh, what can we say about Mobutu and, and his development and how he gets to the point where he's prepared to overthrow, uh, Lumumba and, and take power himself? Yeah. M Mobutu is a, is a, is a sort of cipher of a character in many ways. And um, at the heart of the story I tell really is this friendship and betrayal of that friendship. Um, Lumumba made Mobutu. Um, Mobutu had been a, a journalist and uh, Lumumba was the you know, celebrated politician in town. And he, you know, Mobutu sort of glommed on to Lumumba and, and wrote his coattails and influence as I mentioned, became a junior minister in Lumumba's government and then um, was named head of the army. But during the early weeks of independence and, uh, and, month, and months, uh, the two figures and friends grew apart from each other. Mobutu was sort of always the more uh, suave with Western diplomats character. Lumumba was blunter, more demanding, impatient. Mobutu was correctly seen as sort of more pro-Western, willing to work with 
American officials, less skeptical. And, and that was a sort of wedge between them. But when Mobutu took power on September 14th, 1960, he claimed that he was not taking sides. He was neutralizing both Lumumba, the prime minister, and Kasavubu, who was president. And I think early on, he really was neutral. And, you know, he'd make statements one day that seemed pro-Lumumba, then he'd say something pro-Kasavubu. So there, there's this a matter of weeks where that's when he was called Hamlet of the Congo, and he really was torn. He, I think, thought that he could sort of intervene and break the tie, and then, um, you know, eventually some other solution would appear. But all the while, the Belgians and the Americans are are pushing him to act against Lumumba, and he eventually does and and betrays his friend, puts him under house arrest, allows the president, who's supposedly also neutral, to move freely and and have um, a little bit more power. And so Mobutu sort of acts against his his friend in this um, moment of betrayal. And what's remarkable is how quickly it all happens. So. Independence is June 30th. By September 14th, Mobutu's taken power. And by middle of October, he's put Lumumba definitively under house arrest and acted against him. As you know, spoiler alert, Mobutu would go on to, uh, he would stay in power at first as this sort of uh, power behind the throne, um, you know, even while there was President, President Kasavubu, and various prime ministers, Mobutu was de facto in charge. And then in 1965, he sort of did away with the pretense altogether and made himself president and ruled until 1997. Uh, he made the Congo great again. I think is, uh, <laughs> One might say that. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to the nation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. So before we get into, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Kennedy administration, you know, which wasn't in power yet, obviously, but what the election and uh, what this did for Kennedy. Uh, but before we get to that, to that, if if you, I guess my question is, what is the official CIA story about this today? Uh, you know, given the evidence of uh, planning to murder Lumumba, given the evidence of involvement in the coup and the decision to drop him off in Katanga, where they knew he would be murdered. Uh, what does the agency say about its activities here? Nothing. There is no official story. The CIA is not in the habit of, you know, owning up to its past mistakes. Um, to give you the clearest example of that, the CIA's internal history of its operations against Lumumba, a document we know exists, we know the title of it, is still classified in full to this day, 63 years after Lumumba's death. And actually, as happens, we're talking on January 17th, which is 63 years to the day after Lumumba's death. I think it's absurd that anything from 63 years ago should still be classified. Um, and so atonement for what America did 
begins with an accounting of what it actually did. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's it's absurd that this hasn't been released. The, the main reason, I think, is not um, sort of a desire to protect its own legacy, but there's just um, bureaucratic obstacles to declassification. It's massively underfunded. Documents require sign-off of, you know, every agency involved in its creation. And so as a result, um, there's just a real dearth of, of information. A lot has been released and that's great. And I wouldn't have been able to write my book without that. But um, I truly believe there's there's literally nothing that should be classified from 63 years ago. If you poke, I, I know in other cases, CIA or, or US officials, that's not limited to CIA, but you know, if you poke at stories like the 53 coup in Iran or, you know, other things like this that the CIA was up to at the height of the Cold War that the United States was up to, you'll get the response, you know, oh, I mean, we were considering getting involved in this, but uh, no decision was ever taken. And I think oftentimes this is done, you know, very cleverly. Nothing's put on paper that says, yes, we're going to go kill Lumumba. Uh, but, the, you know, the decision is taken off off the record in a sense. Uh, so that you can have this sense of deniability. Does, is there any of that uh, with respect to Lumumba, or, or you know, is it just complete? We don't talk about this. Well, what's interesting is the decision to try and kill Lumumba was not put on paper. So the note taker at that National Security Council meeting, he returned to his office to write up notes from the meeting. He asked his boss, what do I say about this comment that Eisenhower made? And he was told, oh yeah, don't write that down. So the official notes contain no record of that. But it was impossible to run the complex operation against Lumumba without putting so much on paper, particularly the cables going back and forth to Leopoldville. So these came out with the the church committee. And in, in my book, I tell the story where Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, in 1974, he's now retired. He happens to be back in, in Congo now, called Zaire, um, working in the private sector, hired because of his close relationship with Mobutu. And he gets a letter from the church committee asking him to testify. And so he flies back to Washington. And the night before his interview, he is meeting up with an old CIA colleague, and he's planning to lie through his teeth, as, as Devlin's daughter told me. And then the colleague says, Larry, they have all the cables. And so then he realizes, okay, I actually can't lie because there's a, a paper trail here. And it's true. They, they, the church committee got access to a lot of the operational cables, um, which deal with the uh, delivery of the poison to Congo, and then beyond the poisoning plot, deal with the various other efforts to undermine Lumumba, such as financing anti-Lumumba street protests, um, meeting with Mobutu and uh, propping him up. And so while you can keep the sort of high-level decision off the record and um, keep President Eisenhower's hands officially clean, it just wasn't possible to do that on the uh, nitty-gritty details of an assassination operation and of the other efforts against Lumumba. So we have a, a, a very rich paper trail of all that the CIA was up to in the Congo. Let's talk a bit. The Kennedy administration walks into this kind of like Bay of Pigs, uh, I guess. They, they sort of walk into this plot that's already underway, but they have to deal with the, Kennedy has to deal with the, the repercussions. Let's talk uh, a bit about this. First of all, did the election uh, of Kennedy in, in November 
speed up the timetable for what happened in Congo. Uh, I mean, it's uh, maybe not a coincidence that Lumumba is killed three days before Kennedy is inaugurated. Like, was there concern on the part of the Eisenhower administration that if we don't get this done, uh, the change in administrations is going to is going to mess this up somehow? Yeah, the timing was absolutely key, and it's very much not a coincidence that Lumumba died three days before Kennedy took office. So the the context here is that Lumumba's under house arrest uh, in late November. So in early November, Kennedy's elected. In late November, Lumumba tries to escape house arrest. He successfully slips past the guards, um, but then is caught a few days later, um, spotted by a a convoy, a plane in the air. His convoy is spotted. The CIA helped with that operation to catch him. And Lumumba is, is flown back to the capital and then uh, put into a military prison um, where it's thought he won't be able to escape. And this is now December 1960. And as you alluded to, a real fear develops that the Kennedy administration will have a more pro-Lumumba policy than the Eisenhower administration. And there was good reason to think this. Kennedy had campaigned in in no small part on a smarter policy toward Africa. Um, some of his advisors had said things that were um, suggesting that the U.S. should chart a different course in Congo. Um, you know, even with Lumumba out of power, the chaos and dysfunction continued. So maybe Lumumba wasn't the problem. Maybe Mobutu was the problem. Maybe Lumumba should be brought back to power. Uh, Parliament, which had been um, dismissed, would be reconstituted. Lumumba might be brought back to power, um, maybe in some sort of power-sharing agreement with more, quote-unquote, moderate ministers. So there was a real line of policy developing among certain Kennedy aides that would see um, Lumumba return to power in some form. That was known. It wasn't all of Kennedy's advisors who argued this, but it, but some of them. And on the ground in Congo, this fear developed. Mobutu knew about this and and uh, worried that if Kennedy came to power, Lumumba you know might be sprung from prison and, and put back to power, which would mean Mobutu's own demise. And Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, was also seized with this fear. And then, sorry, at a more practical level, the troops guarding Lumumba in military prison were on the verge of mutiny and threatening to free him. So by January 1961, there was this problem that had to be dealt with, which was that Lumumba in captivity still seemed like a real threat and someone who might come back to power. And so on January 14th, 1961, Devlin learns from Mobutu or someone in his entourage that Lumumba is about to be sent to his death to a, a different province where it's known he'll be killed. And Devlin does two things when he hears this, or rather doesn't do. First, he doesn't try and talk Mobutu out of this decision, even though he knows it'll mean Lumumba's certain death. And remember, Devlin had been regularly funneling Mobutu money. He had been advising him on um, various issues. So in the context of their very close relationship, this was a green light to send Lumumba to his death. And the second thing Devlin did was that he didn't tell Washington about what he had just learned. This was the most important development in the Congo, yet he sat on it and, and didn't inform headquarters about it, even as he was updating them about other events in Congo. Why did he keep this information to himself? It's pretty obvious that 
the reason he did so is because he feared Washington would tell him to put the brakes on the operation. This was a transition period. There were to be no big new decisions. Um, Devlin had recently asked for more money to pay off Mobutu's troops. That request had been denied on the grounds that it was an important decision. It had to wait until the new administration took office, at which point they could decide on it. So he knew that news like this uh, in Washington would likely set off a flurry of, of cables telling him to do what he could to prevent Lumumba's death. And in fact, you know, even though the U.S. government had tried to assassinate Lumumba, by this point, uh, the tide had turned and there, uh, in official Washington, there was not seen um, to be a need for Lumumba to be killed. And so on January 17th, 1961, Lumumba is flown to the breakaway province of Katanga, tortured the whole flight, um, and killed shortly after landing by a Congolese firing squad answering to Belgian officers who in turn were answering to the provincial secessionist government there. Um, so by the time Kennedy took office three days later, Lumumba was dead. Uh, interestingly, no one knew that for certain until mid-February. So there was this period where um, it seemed like there might be a potential to save Lumumba. People were worried about him but didn't know what had what fate had befallen him. But by the time Lumumba's death is announced, at that point, the whole alternative Kennedy policy becomes a moot point and you know the, the the Eisenhower line is essentially picked up again so I, I we're coming up I think on a, a on a place to to wrap up but maybe you could talk just uh, briefly about what the Kennedy administration then had to deal with in terms of the fallout uh, you know uh, you can't as a US president tell aggrieved parties in other parts of the world. Hey, look, that was the last guy who, who was responsible for that. You can't blame me and don't blame my foreign policy. It doesn't work, right? So what what is the Kennedy administration faced with as a result of Lumumba's murder and and kind of its approach to the to the world? So the the Congo that the Kennedy administration is handed uh, upon taking office is one where Lumumba is dead. Um Parliament is not functioning, and Mobutu is essentially in charge as a military dictator. And so with that, uh, the whole Lumumba option now off the table, Kennedy very quickly falls in line with, you know, what was the Eisenhower policy of backing Mobutu, and the money continues to be funneled to Mobutu. Um, there's a sort of an attempt at a fig leaf of a, of a, democracy, um, but that uh, process is, and so there is a new prime minister, but the whole process for choosing him is hopelessly corrupt and the CIA is sneaking in cash through uh, through the sewer pipes to the, the place where this conference is held. So Kennedy uh, uh, basically embraces the Eisenhower slash CIA slash State Department policy toward Congo. He, of course, dies in November 1963, and he did not live to see what would happen next in the Congo, which was in 1964. The sort of bill came due for America's policy in Congo, and the country just explodes in rebellion, in an anti-central government, anti-Mobutu rebellion that is put down only with uh, the help of the CIA, which sets up this massive military operation. Um, I mean, one thing I think your your question is getting at is um, the resentment that this did or did not engender among the Congolese population. And 
I went into this project assuming that, as in Iran, there would be a sort of strong current of anti-Americanism because of the CIA's misdeeds in uh, in this country in in during the Cold War. And to my surprise, that was very much not the case. Congolese are, um, like much of the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, pretty pro-American. And I think the explanation there is in part, um, in part that the CIA's hand was not known for, uh, there was a big delay between the events and, and when it was known that the CIA was involved. And also because the country was ruled for over 30 years by an ostensibly pro-American dictator. So you didn't have, um, you know, the equivalent of, the ayatollahs in Iran feeding the population anti-American propaganda, um, you had someone who was officially on board with the Americans. So there, it, it isn't as if uh, the main reason for America to come clean about what it did in the Congo is to repair relations with Congolese, because actually they're pretty good. Um, but I think it just is the right thing to be done, period. And uh, democracies are defined by openness and accountability, and so coming to terms with America's Cold War past is is consistent with that uh, self-identity. So maybe to just wrap up, um, and there's so much more in the book, and really, you know, if people haven't already bought it, they they should. We haven't even talked about Doug Hammarskjöld, who's a, a very important supporting player here and has his own kind of interesting story that goes along, runs parallel to this. But let's end with sort of, what were your kind of hopes or in, in writing the book or what's your kind of, um, you know, maybe your just your intent or, or, you know, anything that you're hoping might come of uh, talking about this and, and having the United States maybe own up to some level of accountability here? Yeah, I mean, I think my goals were, there were two main ones. One was to really recover Lumumba. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's been so mythologized and all these different um, ideologies have been attributed to him, and uh, at the time, many viewed him as this diabolical, unreliable figure. Um, since then, many viewed him as this sort of perfect saint who could do no harm and, and was merely a victim. And so I wanted to recover that sense of agency. He was making choices. Some of them were smart. Some of them were dumb. Um, he ultimately was you know, brought down by, uh, he was up against these powerful foreign forces. Um, but at the same time, he he had agency and he made decisions. So that was one goal. The other goal was to really point out what America did here, which I think, you know, I don't, uh, I refrain from too much moralizing in the book, but I think it's clear what happened is America, you know, in, in the words of Senator William Fulbright, this demonstrated the arrogance of power, the idea that because you can meddle in some less powerful foreign country in the third world, therefore you should. And it really mattered who was in power in the Congo and, um, you know, who cares about democracy? It's, you know, we need to shape things in our, uh, in the direction we find favorable. And I think the story I tell shows um, the consequences of that, that what is lost when this geopolitical rivalry allows uh, you know, drives decisions in a country that is just trying to develop along its own lines, just trying to achieve true independence, pursue economic development, be free of foreign influence, and yet it wasn't allowed to be that. Um, so those were the the overriding purposes for writing the book. 
Stuart Reed. Again, the book is The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. Thanks again for coming on the program. And like I said, you know, people uh, need to go out and buy this book because it's fantastic. Congratulations. And uh, uh, yeah, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks, Derek. This is really fun talking to you.